Well, welcome everyone to the virtual world of the Eastside Freedom Library. Uh, I'm Peter Ratcliffe, the co-executive director, and thrilled to uh, be hosting this program and, and inviting you to learn more about what's been going on uh, in Japan and the connections between Japan and the United States. The title for today's event is Black Rain, a 40-year struggle helps connect the dots from Trinity to Hiroshima to Fukushima and points between. Um, we're delighted to be collaborating with our friends in the Twin Cities Japanese American Citizens League. And I want to introduce Carolyn Nayamatsu, who's going to welcome us on their behalf. Carolyn? Hi, thank you, Peter. Um, I'm Carolyn Nayamatsu. I'm the chair of the Education Committee of the Twin Cities Japanese American Citizens League. Um, we are we collaborate with the Eastside Freedom Library um, a lot recently because our library is now there. And when before pre pre pandemic and hopefully post we um, we have encouraged our our followers our our community to go over to the library and take advantage of of our collection that is there. Plus we've had several events together. So uh, Eastside Freedom Library has been an important resource for us in the Twin Cities. And this particular topic is not something that we've discussed much in the Japanese Amer uh, American community. Um, and I'm not sure why, although on a personal note, um, one of my aunts um, who was born in the United States, sent back to Japan, and got and, and was stayed in Japan and was in Hiroshima when the bomb um, uh, fell and then returned back to the States. We never talked about Hiroshima. In fact, I don't know that we knew for many years and she died of cancer at a very early age. So I'm not sure, you know, it is, it is part of our history, but how much, um, it'll be interesting to hear this discussion today because it is not a topic, um, that she, my aunt ever brought up, you know, and you would not have ever known she had been in Hiroshima because she certainly came back uh, as far as we could see, you know, and, and not scarred or anything, but did die of cancer at a very early age. So I think this is an important topic and hopefully we will learn a lot today. And thank you, Peter and Eastside Freedom Library for um, hosting this. Thank you, Carolyn. Um, and I do want to encourage you all to come in uh, and visit uh, the Eastside Freedom Library and the books of the Twin Cities Japanese American Citizens League. Uh, we continue to limit uh, use uh, during the pandemic, um, but if you would make an appointment and promise to wear a mask, uh, you're more than welcome to come in and use the materials. Uh, today, uh, our plan is that uh, Mike Bordash, whom I'm going to introduce in a moment, uh, will serve as moderator. Uh, Yuki Miyamoto and Norma Field will be making presentations. Um, we're asking that our audience members remain uh, with both their video and their audio muted. Um, if you have, and I hope you will, if you have questions or comments, um, please use the chat in the Zoom function 
Um, or if you were following us on Facebook, use the comment function. And my colleague, Carla Reilly, um, who is handling the tech and without whom nothing would happen here at the Side Freedom Library. Um, Carla and I will be following your comments and questions and them, communicating them uh, to our presenters. Um, I'm gonna introduce the moderator and then I'm gonna get out of the way. Um, this is a very, very special treat for me um, to have Mike Bordash with us. Um, Mike is the Robert S. Ingersoll Professor of East Asian Languages and Civilizations um, and the College at the University of Chicago. Um, he earned his BA at McAllister and his MA and PhDs from Cornell. Um, he specializes in modern Japanese literature, culture, and intellectual history, um, and has written a lengthy and impressive number of, of books. Um, he is currently a Guggenheim Fellow, um, enabling him to complete a book on Japanese culture during the Cold War era, um, entitled From Post-War to Cold War, Japanese Culture from the Age of Three Worlds. Um, I wanna just tell an anecdote about my relationship with, with Mike. Um, many of you who have come to the Eastside Freedom Library in our eight years of existence um, have left at some point with a business card of mine with my name and contact information. Um, my first business card was created when I visited Japan with Mike in January of 1985. He had the temerity to remind me today that it's been almost 40 years. Um, and in Japan, uh, business cards then, and I imagine probably still, play an important role when people first meet they exchange business cards. Um, I think Mike and the group from McAllister were somewhat embarrassed that I did not have a business card. Um, and so they had one printed for me in Japanese. Um, and I proudly shared it with new friends, people that I met. And then someone explained to me that what the business card actually said in Japanese was for a good time call Peter Ratcliffe. Um, so um, I have Mike Bordash to thank um, for getting me out of the rookie status of, of having a business card and of not taking that or myself too seriously. So uh, at that, I'm gonna go invisible and turn things over to Mike Bordash. Uh, thank you, Peter. And, and I'm amazed you, you trust me enough to, after what we did to you in, in Tokyo in 1985, that you trust me uh, to, to take over uh, from this. I'm really uh, delighted uh, to participate in this event. Um, as, as, as Peter said, I'm a, a former student of his, and I've been a fan and a supporter of the Eastside Freedom Library since it began. I have benefited greatly from its events since I live in Chicago. I'm speaking to you from Chicago. Usually I have to watch them online or, or by recording. Uh, and I've also over the years often attended and benefited from events that were organized by my colleagues, Norma Field and, and Yuki Miyamoto. And for a long time, I've, I've thought of these two sets of events together and thought that what, what Norma and, and Yuki have, have been doing over the past decade would really fit well with Eastside Freedom Library's mission. 
Um, and then this past summer, when we went through the, the 10th anniversary of the Fukushima disaster in March, uh, and then the 76th anniversary of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in, in August, I, I finally just approached both sides and said, I think it would be great if you did uh, something at Eastside uh, Freedom Library with, with Norma and, and Yuki, and I was delighted that they, they, they both uh, agreed to do this. Um, I'm also very happy to have the participation of the Twin Cities chapter of the Japanese American Citizens League and, and thank Caroline and her colleagues for their co-sponsorship. And I thank everyone who has, has turned up uh, uh, remotely today to, to, to join us. So let me briefly uh, introduce our two speakers and then I will get out of the way uh, for their, their presentation. I'll start with, with, with Yuki Miyamoto. She is professor of ethics in the Department of Religious Studies at DePaul University here in Chicago. She has for many years been active in thinking about the transnational uh, history of our nuclear age, uh, especially in relationship to questions of nuclear ethics, environmental ethics, nuclear discourses. Uh, her many publications include a 2011 book from Fordham University Press, Beyond the Mushroom Cloud, Commemoration, Religion and Responsibility After Hiroshima. Uh, and, 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 and then this book, which came out last year in, in Japan, Naze Genbaku ga Aku de Wanai no Ka, which she's translated the title as The Narrative Divergence in Nuclear Discourse, which, which received considerable media attention in Japan. And she was interviewed on television. The book was featured in many uh, newspaper and, and magazine reviews. Uh, and her most recent book uh, just has come out this year called A World Otherwise, environmental praxis in Minamata, uh, a study of another environmental disaster in Japanese modern history. Uh, our second speaker today is Norma Field, my colleague here at the University of Chicago. Uh, Peter introduced me as the Robert S. Ingersoll Professor. Norma is the Robert S. Ingersoll Professor Emeritus of East Asian Languages and Civilizations. Uh, earlier this year, the Association for Asian Studies awarded Norma its Distinguished Contributions to Asian Studies Award, a Lifetime Achievement Award in recognition of her distinguished career uh, and her many scholarly contributions. She's published many wonderful books in English and Japanese, starting with a brilliant study of the tale of Genji, uh, moving on through two best-selling and award-winning books that combined, I think, really brilliantly um, family history and the history of, of, of post-war Japan. Uh, those two, two books, which I recommend highly, are called In the Realm of a Dying Emperor, A Portrait of Japan at Century's End, which came out in 1993, and From My Grandmother's Bedside, Sketches of Post-War Tokyo, which came out in 1997. And most recently, uh, she has published this book, uh, For Dignity, Justice, and Revolution, an Anthology of Japanese Proletarian Literature, uh, a remarkably ambitious project that, that Norma co-edited with, with Heather Bowen-Stroik, uh, Bowen uh, bringing in English really for the first time the enormous and important history of the Japanese proletarian literature movement. Norma and, and Yuki have both been working for many years on the history of nuclear energy, nuclear weapons, the discourse of, of, of nuclear power, and their transnational circuits and costs for many years, Norma taught a course here at the University of Chicago called From Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and Beyond, that among other things led students to explore the responsibility of our own institution, the University of Chicago, at the start of the nuclear age. And over the past decade, Norma and Yuki and their colleagues have, have organized a series of four conferences uh, under the title The Atomic Age, 
uh, that, to borrow a phrase from their title today, really connected the dots between different places, different moments, and different institutions that help us understand the atomic age that we share. I wanted to mention one of the things that came out of, of that series of conferences was a bilingual blog and, and a social news feed that's still going strong. They still, it's updated regularly with, with news about what's going on in the nuclear age. I'll post a link in chat for those of you that are interested uh, in, in, in following up and, and seeing what they've been doing. But without further ado, uh, please join me in, in welcoming Yuki Miyamoto and, and Norma Field to the Eastside Freedom Library. Yuki is going to hi everybody um, and Mike, thank you so much. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm overwhelmed by what you by what you've said about our activities, which is all to say about the age we're living in and um, it's a great pleasure to become acquainted with the Eastside Freedom Library. I've watched some of your programs. Um, what an honor to um, have Yuki and me uh, present to your audience and the Japanese American League of the Twin Cities. And thank, thanks to all of you um, who are sharing part of Indigenous Peoples Weekend with yeah. us. Um, and so Yuki generously has agreed to um, manage our slide, our PowerPoint today. And uh, we will be taking turns depending on the topic. It's going through a lot at breakneck speed, so and for which we both feel very bad uh, or regretful. So I hope you'll note things that you want to pursue further or challenge us on. And um, we very, very, very much welcome that kind of engagement. So with that, if Yuki, if you'll start our slideshow. Yes, thank you, that one. Um, this is a shot I took about three weeks ago. To my back is the Apple store, the big glossy Apple store in downtown Chicago. And turning around across the Chicago River, I was startled to see this sign, you are on Potawatomi land. And it, it was quite remarkable to have that space transformed in that way. Um, it's supposed to be up there, that banner for at least two years. So it's not, it's not fortunately, um, um, an instantaneous what you'd hear one day, gone the next. And I think our presentation has a great deal to do with the history of uh, um, indigenous people uh, during the, in, in the nuclear age. And it occurred to me today, thinking about what we wanted to do uh, with all of you, that we hope that what we present today is going to be respectful to all the sufferers of this technology and how it's been socially and politically put into practice. Sufferers who are no longer with us and sufferers who are yet to be born and all of you here today. Um, and I also wanted to give particular thanks to Yuki. I didn't give her much warning about this um, because it's been my great good fortune to be her colleague and friend. Um, she, as she said, is from from Hiroshima City, and she is a second generation Hibaksha. Her mother um, was a Hibaksha, pretty close to the hypocenter, I think 1.6 kilometers, and um, had a life, lifetime of illness. And it's that kind of um, experience which Yuki doesn't often refer to, which nevertheless is, is very important in reminding us once in a while, especially if we come distant, become distant or if these become 
uh, academic topics, um, that, that these are real human beings, so many, as well as the living environment that have been so uh, damaged by this technology. Okay, thank you. So let's, should we go to the next one? Okay, um, well, first of all, thank you. Um, thank you, Mike and Peter, Carla, Caroline, Caroline, and Japanese American Citizens League. Uh, thank you for having me here and Noma. Um, as Noma mentioned, my personal history and um, academic interests, I have been following this nuclear issues and this is a great honor for me to be here. Um, so without further ado, uh, I would like to just mention this title, Background the Picture. This was actually drawn by Hibaksha, who is a, uh, uh, the atomic bomb sufferer. Okay, um, and this um, cover page, as it were, you, you, some of you have already seen. Um, the images are quite small, but they tie together or they represent some of the big dots in our presentation today. And so for, uh, going, uh, Let's see, from the, the upper left, the upper left, I can't use my uh, cursor. Anyway, the upper left map and the lower right-hand map, these are have to do with the impact of nuclear testing, um, nuclear weapons testing. And the left-hand map, which has become relatively famous in the US, shows sites in the continental United States that have been traversed by at least two plumes. Um, from uh, nuclear testing and the Nevada test site. Uh, and the lower right hand shows Pacific nuclear testing by the United States. And the image is very small, but we'd like, and, and it captures, um, it arrests an ongoing moment as all these images do in fact, of course. Um, but I'd like to note that um, the impact of the Pacific nuclear testing also reached the continental United States. Um, on the upper right hand, we have one moment of the spread of the Chernobyl bloom, uh, plume in 1986. Um, if you were to look it up on the internet, you can see how much of um, parts of Europe and North Africa and then points east were covered by the Chernobyl bloom. In fact, plume have probably circled the globe several times. And towards the left is a moment uh, post Fukushima 2011, March 11th. And again, it's just, it's a snapshot to suggest how much uh, the, the fallout from that, those explosions covered the earth. And, and the mushroom cloud, the only mushroom cloud we are showing here is the first one from a nuclear test. Um, it's Trinity test, as it was called, uh, July 16th, 1945. And it's very important for us to start to, to give a special place to the Trinity bomb. Too often, uh, nuclear weapons history has been narrated as beginning with Hiroshima. And in fact, no, we have to go back to Trinity, uh, which was not empty land as it turns out. And we're learning more and more about who was there along with um, that gorgeous um, environment that was being uh, contaminated. So our mushroom cloud at one point, and these are some of the, um, these are the points that we hope to at least glancingly refer to developing some more than others. Okay, thanks. 
So I would like to talk about the atomic bombings on August 6 and 9, 1945. And the background illustration in the photo is um, some of you might be familiar and actually might have practiced. Uh, this is duck and cover, and this was being widely practiced. But I would like to talk about how this practice, unfortunately, didn't do anything to protect you. And uh, first of all, the characteristic of characteristics of the atomic bombings or nuclear weapons was heat, which rose up to 6,000 to 9,000 Fahrenheit, which is, you know, like me, who is not good at math or counting numbers, doesn't mean much, but this is the ground, this is ground zero. Um, this is, it is said that the, the temperature is almost equivalent to the surface of the sun and blast is also this much, which also doesn't mean much to me, but um, you know, the witness, those survivors often told, the um, testimonies often tell us that people were wandering off in the city with the eyes coming out of the socket, kind of dangling over the cheeks. So because of the air pressure kind of pushed your eyes out, um, or sometimes people's, um, stomach was burst out and you know in, intense internal organs were coming out but still people were wandering around in the city so that's kind of the blast and the um the effect the effect of the bombs bomb what it does to the human body and of course radiation and there are two kinds of radiation initial radiation and residual radiation which is often called the fallout, which we will talk about later in a minute. But in the meantime, I also want to talk about the heat, initial, uh, initial flash. Um, flash was also very intense so that people lost their eyesight or caused, uh, later caused the cataract. And when that, that intense flash and the heat were combined, uh, this is the photo, um, this was very close to the hypo center, and presumably someone was sitting on the, these stone steps. But because of the intense heat, uh, intense flash printed this person's shadow onto the steps, stone steps, and the actual body was evaporated. And Destol, by the end of by the end of 1945, Hiroshima 140,000, Nagasaki 74,000. Although Nagasaki bomb was plutonium bomb, um, as a theory, this was more powerful than Hiroshima uranium bomb, but um, because of the geographical differences and the population density, Nagasaki Destol was uh, quote unquote smaller. Uh, it's, it's not even small number, however. And this is the photo that I was haunted and still is haunting to me. And this is, this is a photo of 19 year old soldier who was called on to to uh, come, come to the city after the bombing because this was a chaotic situation and, and able bodies were called for and to come to deal with the um, uh, catastrophe of the city. So he was, in other words, he was not there at the time of the bombing, but he came to deal with the injured bodies, dead bodies, and that's how he became, he fell to 
acute radiation sickness. So that shows that manifested as a spots on his face. And he was actually, he died uh, two hours after this photo had been taken. And I was, I, as um, Noma introduced me, I was growing up in Hiroshima and this was one of the haunting images when I came, um, when I encountered at the age of 12 in, in, in Hiroshima, kids were pretty much exposed to these graphic images very early on. And Fallout, um, Fallout is um, roughly speaking, deposition of radioactive materials on Earth or ocean from the atmosphere, meaning things when the explosion took place, things were dust on the surface of the, of the, the Earth or other uh, materials. Um, blew up in there and eventually coming down. But when they were coming down, they were they became radioactive. Uh, however, this had been so. When you come into contact with the fallout, which was a um, um, phenomena of black rain in Hiroshima and in Nagasaki, when you came in contact with fallout, nuclear fallout, you were of course exposed to radiation. However, very early on, immediately after the atomic bombings in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, General Farrell, chief of the War Department, says blast is chief effect of the atomic bombs and no radioactivity in Hiroshima ruin. And this was recorded in the New York Times on, in 1945. However, what we like to bring, uh, draw your attention to is this fact that as Richard Miller says, in the long run, the radiation from the bomb was more significant than the blast or thermal effects. And because this initial, initial influence or initial effects were, were so big and so visible and so immediate. So we often, um, we may often think that the atomic bombings were just a big bomb and radiation effects, which caused slow death, which had been um, dismissed or downplayed. And that's what we would like to bring attention to today. Right, yes. Um, Farrell's comment, I think about September 8th, he was sent there by General Leslie Groves to precisely to shut down uh, this all this talk about uh, radiation poisoning that was lingering even a month after the bursts. Um, and, and the shocking thing in part is that that has pretty much stayed one kind of official account, both for the United States and Japan, um, and, and really for the international nuclear industry in many ways. It's such an effort to minimize um, the long-term effects of radiation. So I just wanted to, um, call to your attention different kinds of exposure. Um, and this is a, a graphic from the Centers Art for the United States Centers for Disease Control. It's pretty useful. Um, there are three images and most of us, I think I will confess among them until the Fukushima disaster really hadn't distinguished between these forms. And the external contamination on top um, is, is direct exposure. Um, to radioactive materials on clothing, hair, skin. Um, it's, it's, if you have seen images from films of people getting exposed, 
um, at a nuclear plant, um, a weapons plant, for example, and being, their skin is being scrubbed off in a shower, the effort there is to get rid of this external contamination. Um, and on the bottom is one that we're all familiar with when we get x-rays or scans. Um, the source of the, of the radioactivity is external to our bodies. Uh, when an x-ray machine is turned off, we are no longer being exposed to that source. This is not to say that it's insignificant. It's a huge part of, um, of uh, nuclear medicine. Um, which is not extensively um, monitored necessarily in the US, or it's not monitored by the Nuclear Re Regulatory Commission for a very uh, explicit reason. But this is one that's familiar to us. The one that most paid attention to until Fukushima was internal contamination, where we breathe in or eat something that has been contaminated or breathe air that is contaminated. And, and I likened it at first to having a small nuclear uh, reactor inside our bodies because we have these tiny, tiny particles that either stay in a particular organ, um, strontium, for example, being similar to calcium, so residing, lodging in our bones, um, and, and, and being able to bombard our organs, um, our neighboring organs from a, a very close position. And that this continues until the material has been expelled from our bodies. Sometimes some of that can happen um, through the digestive tract, through urine and feces. Um, it's very, very hard to get rid of, um, of uh, contamination that's been lodged in our lungs. So this is this internal contamination is in a way one of the keys to our presentation today. It's the part that, the nu that nuclear expertise has been determined not to elaborate with the general public, um, to minimize its impact if it, if it can only uh, acknowledge it. Um, uh, as an aside, I might say that a late friend to many of us, Dr. Jeffrey Patterson, who was at the Medical School of the University of Wisconsin, described all um, nuclear authorities as engaging in scum, S-C-U-M, secrecy um, of everything from the public, cover up if it threatens to be leaked and minimization if it can no longer be continually denied. And that's very much the case with internal contamination. Okay, let's... Next, next slide. Ellen uh, Timoro, no? Yeah. Okay. Next, next. Yeah. Sorry. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm seeing that my internet is unstable. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. And, and I want to remind you of these two principles of um, radiological governance, the linear no threshold model. Um, which says that there is no threshold below which exposure to, ion to ionizing radiation can be said to be harmless and the risk increases linearly with the dose. That's the position of the, national, the US National Academy of the Sciences. And it is still observed by most regulatory groups around the world. Um, Congress has been under continual pressure in recent years, perhaps going back a decade, to get rid of this. Um, there are problems with the linear no threshold model, but it puts a break. It puts a break on how much um, radioactivity can be released to the general public. And I think 
it's, it's a line that has to be held uh, under present circumstances. The reason, for instance, I and other, not, I won't call myself experts on this matter will question the linear no threshold model is that some people say that at low doses, um, radioactivity could be even more harmful to organisms. And then I briefly quote a, a famous a champion uh, in this area, Dr. Helen Caldicott, Australian physician, who says that by virtue of the nature of the biological damage done by radiation, it takes only one radioactive atom, one cell, and one gene to initiate the cancer or mutation cycle. Okay, thank you. Uh, yes, the Atomic Bomb Casualty Commission, ABCC, set up very early um, after the war, uh, which has since, since 1975 become the Radiation Effects Research Foundation um, binationally uh, financed by the United States and Japan um, with uh, branches in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, these are, I don't know if any of you ever encountered these. I, as, as, as a US citizen growing up in Tokyo, Japan, uh, in post-war base schools often uh, had classrooms in Quonset huts. And this, these are still standing. Um, the research they have done begun uh, in 1950 called the Lifespan Study, which is ongoing, is still regarded as the gold study, gold standard, sorry, in the study of radiation effects. Um, there are many, many, many problems that have been pointed out with the lifespan study. For example, that it only started five years after the bombing and has been pointed out. This would necessarily um, advantage people who are, um, have robust uh, health conditions because the terrible, um, the, the lack of food and shelter and winters um, in the first years after the bombing finished off many people who couldn't withstand it. So starting in 1950 already skews the sample in a very powerful way. Another um, important aspect is that it was um, only studying uh, uh, ex external contamination, external exposure. Um, so it, it had how many, how far you were from the um, hypocenter and whether there were any sheltering effects. And these things were reconstrued after the fact, relying on memory. Um, yes, afterwards in this, um, as I said, successive dosimetry systems are established, um, computer simulation and whatnot um, to estimate what people were exposed to. But it was always, um, it was never accounting for everything that people ate in those days. What choice did they have except to eat locally grown crops, uh, fish, drink the water? All of that is disregarded in the gold standard. Um, and successive dosimetry systems as I referred to were established on the basis of the Hiroshima Nagasaki, um, this reconstruction of distance and, and uh, shielding effect and the Nevada test site. And um, that has had the, a very useful function. Uh, it's created a standard for judging how much people have been exposed to weather in, in any kind of radiological, as they like to say, incident, whether of nuclear weapons testing or nuclear power plant accidents or the routine operation of nuclear power plants. It has 
pretty much been used, it has mostly functioned to deny the appeals, the claims of most sufferers, um, which is an extraordinary thing. And I'd like to say that this really hit me in a blinding way at the Three Mile Island 40th anniversary um, occasion, well, where Yuki was with me too, and listening to people talk and seeing what had been um, medically, scientifically recognized, acknowledged. Um, it occurred to me to say, what is the silent science that just throws its hands up after these episodes and says, we don't know what caused all these cancers, but it has nothing to do with this radiological incident. So um, the ABCC, um, RERF, and uh, the lifespan study, I would say, frankly, is the enemy to most sufferers. And black rain, um, is another part of that. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, the atomic bomb survivors relief law. The, the Japanese government tried to, um, tried to provide relief for the bomb sufferers beginning in 1957. Uh, the US government has never done that, of course. Um, and that's a very important point. But um, as, as Yuki mentioned earlier, so much of the impact of radiation exposure and contamination um, can be delayed. And therefore, so many people have suffered without knowing, without having any public acknowledgement of their illnesses. And um, in Japanese, there was a very homely term, bura bura byo, people who are too tired, um, who were doubly stigmatized, not just as A-bomb exposed peoples, but people who seemed unwilling to stand up on their own feet and and, and do an honest day's work because they were, they were suffering from chronic fatigue syndrome is, is a more um, common way to put it for us. So that has worked in some ways in tandem with the ABCC and RERF to keep limited those who are eligible for compensation and healthcare support. And black rain sufferers go in with that. I just wanted to show a picture of Dr. Shuntaro Hida um, himself, a Hibaksha, a, a military physician at the time, he has been, he died in 2017. He did, he did live to see Fukushima and speak very vigorously. In his late 90s, he had retired from his medical practice, but I read that he was still traveling as much as three times around the country um, after Fukushima to talk about the shared suffering and risk that entailed. He's a, a true champion. We have many of them many of them famous and not famous. And after 30 years of struggling, seeing patients come with symptoms that could not be recognized, diagnosed because internal contamination was not accepted, was not acknowledged. He finally um, came to an acknowledgement really with collaboration through an American researcher, Dr. Ernest Sternglass, who himself suffered opprobrium and um, marginalization, but I just wanted us to see a picture of Dr. Hida. Um, this I won't dwell on much here, but this is um, a 20 some minute video in English that you can find online um, that was released last year, really done by citizen activists uh, in Japanese and English. And, and here is another hero um, who just turned 98 last month um, a meteorolo meteorologist, 
anthropologist um, from Texas PhD from Tokyo University. He in some ways was haunted by the work that meteorology had done in delimiting the sufferers who could be recognized, um, not deliberately, but because that's they could do under the circumstances. And um, Dr. Masuda in, began to listen when he presented black rain fallout districts areas, he began to hear from sufferers saying, how, how you define the territory exposed has been a huge problem for us because we've all been excluded, we didn't. But we, we were part of the black rain people. And he began to listen to stories, go to the archives, and redefine, and also a man who decided to take up the internet in his 80s because he figured out that was a way to communicate with young people. So another of our heroes, ongoing, fighting the official authorities about the impact of Black Rain to this day. Yep, back to Trinity. Yes, um, the Trinity test. And I'm just quoting these. Um, because in a way it gives you, especially the Lawrence NYT reporter who was, um, as we now say, embedded uh, in many of these occasions, handpicked by Leslie Groves. Um, Democracy Now! and some others in recent years have called on his Pulitzer Prize to be withdrawn because of his contribution to falsifying the impact of these bombs. But as you can, but his reaction here is very commonplace. Let's think about the name Trinity in the first place given by Oppenheimer to this test. Um, another, um, you can see the different responses of people on the spot, Kenneth Brainbridge to Oppenheimer. Um, people, the scientists were very aware of what happened at the same time that they were in awe of what happened. Um, and that kind of bedazzlement about scientific technological progress, I think, is still part of, of the ecology of this day. Um, to the right, I'm showing Tina Cordova, um, who's the co-founder of the Tularosa, oh, Tularosa Basin, I'm sorry, typo, Basin Downwinders Consortium. Um, another of our heroines, people, yes, they were not warned or evacuated and they were living there and they had their they were ranchers and farmers and what choice did they have but to drink the water from their cisterns um, to eat the food that they um, grew and to suffer as she has shown us recently on her website even four generations of multiple cancer and other illness harm all the while not knowing, they've only really come together about 15 years ago, begun to come together. So again, a defect at the very beginning of our use of this technology um, for, for destructive purposes. There's no ambiguity here. I would like to talk a little bit about RICA, which is Radiation Exposure Compensation Act. Um, this was implemented in 1990. So think about what year this Trinity test was and subsequent nuclear arms race and nuclear tests, how long it took to implement this still unsatisfactory uh, compensation act, which even though even so, it's slated to end in 2022. And I would like to show some maps here 
um, not because this recur covers a vast majority, but rather to show how this is arbitrary um, set up. So this is something that Noma was earlier talking about this, the gap or discrepancies between scientific knowledge and actual people's suffering. And for example, uh, downwinders um, on the left map, it will show uranium uh, workers' states. So these many states, well, not, not that many, but these states were covered, uh, These uh, the uranium workers in these states were covered with this compensation act. And on the right map, we'll show you how many actually uranium mines exist in the United States. And some of them were not actually active, but when it's closed, then we have to do um, a, a decontamination, a clean cleanup. So in order to avoid that, some mines were just abandoned, it's open, but it was not actually actively used. And getting back to the left side map, um, the this pale blue area shows, indicates downwinders. Um, so this area, downwinders were covered and the green is the combination of downwinders and uranium workers. But you can see that New Mexico records, um, this downwinders were not covered as if this plume had stopped on the borders of the states. And New Mexico has, I just wanted to throw this in, New Mexico has this Trinity tests and nuclear test sites from Nevada, uh, the downwinds from Nevada nuclear test sites. And also there is Los Alamos. And then now nuclear waste is coming to New Mexico. And there's a small town in Texas also willing to take in nuclear waste, but it's, all, it's very close to New Mexico borders. And it seems that similar things are happening everywhere, but also in Japan as well. The economically struggling communities were targeted to host a nuclear waste site. So the similar thing is taking place everywhere, but especially in New Mexico, they were suffering with many nuclear, um, the uh, consequences of nuclear industry. Yeah, um, this is President Dwight David Eisenhower, who seems very presidential by comparison to our recent, um, yes. Um, in 1953 at the United Nations declaring Adams for Peace. Um, I won't dwell on it except to say Adams for Peace is a very, uh, is, is, a, is a brilliant choice of words. Um, we should never forget that nuclear, um, the nuclear technology, whether for weapons or for energy production, all begins with the split. So just to say that nuclear weapons and, and nuclear energy um, cannot be separated. Um, and so Atoms for Peace is, was a brilliant, um, brilliant, uh, the best of Madison Avenue almost ploy for the naming of, of, of announcing this technology. A few months later was the Bravo shot on um, Bikini about which Yuki will talk more in a few minutes. Um, thermonuclear hydrogen bomb. So, so much for Atoms for Peace as if it announced a new era for the United States. 
and it represented the beginning of civilian nuclear power generation all of, um, around the world and a new source of proliferation. Okay, thanks. So the Marshall Islands, um, I would like to talk about six, so um, during the Cold War, the US conducted 67 nuclear tests between 1946 and 1958. Um, however, this island, these islands had this history of long history of colonization and first colonized by Spain and Germany and of course Japan and the US until 1986. The Marshall Islands became kind of independence but still um, the Marshallese have this free association with the US which allows them to come to the US but at the same time it causes diaspora. And especially I would like to focus on this project of 4.1, which was declassified several years ago. And this is a kind of a shocking sentence, but actually it was revealed after the documents became declassified. And this is the quote. This was made by Merrill Eisenberg, who is the director of AEC, Atomic Energy Com Committee, Health and Safety Laboratory in 1956 uh, nuclear tests. And the entire sentence goes like this. While it is true that these people do not, these people, referring to the Marshallese, these people do not live, I would say, the way Westerners do, civilized people, it is nevertheless also true that these people are more like us than mice. And this was also in the film documentary, but also Barbara Johnston's books. Um, but this is the kind of attitude still colonization, um, uh, colonization mind, mindedness has been still going on. And for example, this, these are the pictures from especially the uh, Bravo test. And on the left, you can see that the, the boy from boy on the Marshall Islands, he was kind of examined. And the middle picture is from, um, he was one of the tuna ship crew who was outside of the designated area of the US nuclear test on um, March 1st, 1954, uh, which Norma was mentioned earlier. Um, the tuna boat was outside of the designated area of the test site. However, they received nuclear fallout. It was called the um, ash of death. And so because of that, one of them, the communication person on the ship, he passed away six months after uh, they came back to Japan. It took them two weeks to come back from the Marshall Islands to Japan. And this kind of shook Japan entirely, uh, I might say more so than Hiroshima and Nagasaki at the time. And uh, you can see on the right, the tuna was lined up there and uh, the two, uh, two I, I think they are scientists in white robe, uh, white coats, and another person was um, putting Geiger counter on tuna to see how much, um, 
how much the tuna was irradiated. And those, those tests had been, those tests continued until the end of 1954, but it stopped um, afterwards. And it is said that the tuna for the can, canned tuna was thoroughly examined because those canned tuna was going to go to the states or to go to exported. But other ones were uh, sort of buried somewhere in Japan, mostly Tsukiji fishing markets at some part of the Tsukiji market. But most of them, we don't know where this irradiated tuna was buried. But it was not just the Marshall Islands that tests were going on. Of course, um, Britain was taking, uh, conducting the nuclear tests around there on the Christmas Islands or Australia. So more than 1,000 ships were involved besides this Japanese tuna ship, which called, um, ironically called Lucky Dragon, number five. Um, and the part of the reasons that the examination of the Geiger counter or radioactive materials on the tuna, radiation in tuna, stopped was because of this agreement between Japanese government and the US government. And the money was paid to, uh, eventually, the money was paid to the 23 crew members of this Lucky Dragon crew. However, this payment was called condolence payment. It was not compensation uh, because this was not consider considered as the US fault. Uh, so, and also in this agreement, um, the Japanese government admitted or the Japanese government agreed that the no further pursuit of responsibility. So no more complaint about this. So from here, I would like to move on to Hanford, Washington state. And this is the Washington, uh, this is the Hanford nuclear site, which um, besides this Columbia River, and, and all nuclear facilities have to be located very near the water source because it needs to be, um, the reactors need to be cooled down. So it requires a lot of water. Uh, so that's why water, uh, the body of water is needed. But which also means that the water which was taken in the facility would go out after a couple of degrees warmer and ex exited into the river, which of course the, the temperature affects the temperature of the river and of affects the biodiversity in the river as well. So in that sense, again, the reactor is not necessarily that kind to the, the environment. Um, so here, actually, um, because during the Cold War, this is the main place to produce plutonium. And in, in that process, during the, in the midst of that process, it also produces nuclear waste, which was leaked into Columbia River, um, bringing about down rivers. Uh, in this case, not down winders, but rather down rivers. And, um, 177 underground waste tanks were found in this area. Um, 
and 60, uh, it is said 56 million gallons have leaked so far, but some would say this was a kind of a minimum um, speculation. Also, um, I would like to talk about the Green Round, which is an experiment done by the government and at the Hanford nuclear facility. And this is a secret US government release of radioactive fission products. It took place on December 2nd and 3rd in 1949. And so these are the tanks. And despite this huge contamination, and it is often said that the most contaminated land in the Northern Hemisphere or in, in the United States. So the um, Hanford is quite highly contaminated nonetheless. And then now after the Cold War, many facilities, many buildings were closing down so now what was going on is decommission de of the buildings, which also um, produces the dust and uh, con further contamination. And then um, this is uh, the two, two photos on the left. This was from our trip, Noma and I, with this uh, NPO called the Core Consequences of Radiation Exposure, we planned to have to invite a Nagasaki survivor, a Nagasaki sufferer, to Hanford because Nagasaki bomb, the plutonium for the Nagasaki bomb, was produced in Hanford. So we tried to meet. The, the radiation exposure sufferers in Nagasaki as well as in Hanford. But it was, uh, it was a good lesson for us. It was very difficult for us to communicate with people there in Hanford to talk about their own radiation exposure harm, harm from radiation exposure, which we will get to later a little bit. Um, but instead, instead of admitting that they were exposed to radiation, they, were, they are suffering from radiation exposure. Uh, this is a Richland High School, which is in Richland, the city of Richland, which is a commuter town to Hanford. And you can see the school mascot, which is um, Mushroom Cloud. And the lower left photo is this high school's TV club, which is Atomic TV. You can see this is the model after, uh, this is the um, uh, little boy, which is dropped on Hiroshima. Um, so this is the shape of the little boy. And the right photo is one of the workers at Hanford. He is definitely suffering from uh, some respiratory illness. But this is very rare. People who are working there, uh, whose, li um, whose lives or livelihood depends upon Hanford, it's very difficult to voice their illnesses, but even it's difficult for them to, to see themselves as a victim of it. Um, so I, I just like to juxtapose these two different images on the left, glorifying this weapons and um, 
these weapons, which cause the radiation, um, radioactive materials. And on the right, this illness, which has not been, um, has, which has not received deserving attention. Hi, I've turned my camera off in the hopes of more internet stability. Apologies for that. Let's quickly, I just, we can look at this later, but these are some really fine books that give us a history of um, the radio, the suffering caused in the American West by, by this technology. So let's move to the next slide. Okay, thank you. This is, um, Mike referred to this briefly in the introduction. Um, we started with that picture of um, the three of us in this program, presenting this program today, being located in Potawatomi land in Chicago. And this, since we're all connected to the University of Chicago, um, I wanted to bring attention to this congressional report authored by current Senator Ed Markey from Massachusetts. He was then a uh, uh, representative, uh, Markey, and he compiled this extraordinary, it is truly an extraordinary report. You can read it all on the internet of the kinds of human radiation experimentation done on US citizens and those in the trust territories like the Marshall Islands. Um, this is far from the most hair-raising report, but it is pretty astonishing. Um, you, you know that I uh, made a point of emphasizing internal contamination where a person ingests radioactively contaminated materials. This one, which is categorized in the Markey report as 11.001, number 188A, took place at the University of Chicago between 61 and I think 63, where 102 students and staff were either fed ingestion, uh, were fed real fallout from the Nevada test site, which I show on the other side, the right-hand side of the screen. Um, and if we can go back to the previous one. Okay, thank you. Yeah, no, no, that's good. That's good, thank you. Um, or simulation of Nevada test site and to see how these radioactive materials would move through these bodies. Um, they were told, um, it is only reported that they were very glad to contribute to US civil defense, a point that Yuki will return to later. I've often wished that I could bring together some of the University of Chicago students and staff with these uh, American soldiers who were compelled to witness small boy and to see how they've been doing. My suspicion is that the people who graduated from the U of C in those days probably had better access to healthcare than the soldiers on the, in the right-hand screen. Um, and this is a statement I'd like to underscore by a, a book that will be coming out, I think next February by um, Robert Jacobs, friend for both Yuki and me, um, a statement that says the Cold War was a war by the Soviet Union and the United States against their own citizens and people in trust territories. So yes, deterrence theory is supposed to have kept a war from happening, a hot war from happening during the Cold War. In a way, it wasn't necessary because the two governments used their own citizens to, do, to drop these weapons um, around and to see what happened. Um, it, was, it, was, it was human radiation experimentation. This is also true of the UK and France and China too. They all took advantage of the territories they had accessed through their own imperial past. But this is very important, this quote from uh, Bo Jacobs as a way to 
uh, hang on to what we want to get across in this presentation. In Bo Jacobs' book, Nuclear Bodies, he also talks about the proliferation uh, created by nuclear power plants. That nuclear power plants, let us remember, at best serve two generations of people with electricity. Um, if former Mayor um, Giuliani, Rudy Giuliani of New York had his way, nuclear power plants licenses would be expended to 80 to 100 years. That's another part of the ambitions he's had uh, since uh, leaving office. Um, so an enormous, for two generations of electricity, global, um, global contamination with radioactive waste that no one has come up with a solution to. Um, okay, yeah. Quickly, I just wanted to remind us about all the places where nuclear tests have taken place. This is again a static map that doesn't show how much radioactivity was traveling around and indeed um, spreading to all our environments and the bodies of living things. And then the next page, which shows the location of nuclear power plants. Well, this, this image from the Guardian does show um, one kind of danger, earthquakes. I mean, in Japan, it is impossible to have a nuclear power plant that is not in an earthquake zone. Um, very hard to get away from seismic faults, in fact. But of course, these aren't the only dangers. And much as nuclear power plants, uh, nuclear power is touted by some as a response to climate change, uh, we, that leaves aside many, many practical factors, such as we can't build many we can't build them fast enough to make a difference and, and the nuclear proliferation, but also climate change itself with rising sea levels um, endangers nuclear power plants and threatens to make them. As Yuki mentioned earlier, all nuclear power generation requires water. Well, that is there an enormous liability that climate change brings to um, nuclear power plants. Um, yes, okay, then we can, yeah, please. Okay, so given that the nuclear issues concerns health and also environment, uh, race, colonialism, gender, economics, and all those issues, which we would like to bring in um, as much as we have as much time as we have, um, but health, which is quite apparent, however, it takes time to uh, um, for that uh, for the uh, radiation exposure to appear as, as health issues or symptoms. And so that's one issue. And also it's extremely difficult to make, to, to prove that the relations between exposure and the current uh, health issues. And often compensation, which has been practiced in the United States and in Japan tend to be uh, paid after you show that health effects, where after you fall ill, then the money is paid, paid to. So the point is that, which, um, which we will come back to this, but unless you become ill, you wouldn't be compensated. And especially a kind of illness that the government lists as the uh, eligible for the compensation. So certain illnesses, if it's not on the list, you are not gonna get compensation or your anxieties for the rest of your life, which is not counted, or your concerns for the next generations, which is also not counted. 
Um, so that's that's the problem I also would like to draw your attention to. And the environment, which is also very uh, apparent, it seems to me, and the recent colonialism, the Marshall Islands, New Mexico, and many other places show that those people who are politically underprivileged, they are the ones often um, become the target of the nuclear sites. Um, and, and a couple of things I would like to mention here is that, for example, in New Mexico, there are many indigenous people were, um, uh, many indigenous people worked for the uranium mines. However, when the RICA, which I was talking about the Compensation Act was introduced, some of them hadn't, um, some of them didn't read or didn't write English. So it, it was also very difficult for them to even fill out the form to become eligible. Um, so the language barrier or many other barriers, some of them were just not used to um, buying postal stamps. And so that's not, that's not their way of communicating with others. So they have to sort of, um, they have to change their lifestyles or they have to adjust their lifestyles in order to receive the compensation. And also um, politically, politically underprivileged people were any kind of minorities and sometimes including religious minorities. And earlier, Noma introduced us the pictures of uh, picture of cover, uh, book covers, and one of them was by Trisha Pritikin, who is herself a Tony, but also a downwinder of the Hanford site. And she published the book in 2020 uh, entitled The Hanford Plaintiffs, which actually have awarded already with seven book prizes by now. And according to the book, many Mormons were also moved to or encouraged to the Hanford site, Hanford area. And especially because one of the plaintiffs wondered, especially because Mormon's lifestyle, they don't drink, they don't smoke. So it's, it's very good experimental subjects um, for the radiation exposure. So um, in that sense, in many ways, this issues touches upon in our everyday life. However, why those dots have not been connected, which is the theme of our talk today. And one of the things is that this the rhetoric of sacrifice, instead of apologizing, apologizing to those sufferers, uh, the, the government tends to appreciate them and glorify them. Thank you for protecting us. And this goes back to the, the rhetoric of nuclear deterrence theory that Noma was touching upon. Um, because, of, because of having nuclear, owning nuclear weapons or nuclear technology, we have protected our country. But then when you look at those examples, you can see who has been protected or rather who has not been protected, who has been who has been exposed. And the Day of Remembrance is the resolution which was passed the two, uh, 2020, October 2020. And this was also the same kind of rhetoric thanking those who are engaged in the nuclear industry in New Mexico. 
they were thanking them. Uh, so that's part of the reasons that it's harder to recognize their own victimhood, but also as well as to voice their suffering. And also, um, again, this discrepancies between the real life suffering and representation in public. And if not downplayed and dismissed, radiation exposure has been consumed as uh, entertainment. And for example, um, when the, um, the nuclear bombs or nuclear technology has been often represented through female figures like on the right side, so that it gives us an impression that uh, like quote unquote women, like women, if we treat them well, they serve us, but if we don't treat them well, they would explode. So that's the kind of, um, that's the kind of message, but also when the men came in contact with radiation, they became superheroes like Spider-Man, um, Iron Man. And so there are many superheroes were, uh, superheroes became superhuman, ubermensch uh, by coming into contact with radioactive materials. So this is also gender issues as well, um, but also medical, uh, medical implications. I'm hoping that uh, we have time to touch upon. Noma has been ready for that slide. Um, but at this moment, I just wanted to show that this discrepancies and why then those dots. So it's so hard to connect those dots. Yes, um, back to Black Rain. Um, this is a moment of uh, when the High Court, Hiroshima High Court, announced victory for the plaintiffs. Um, you can see they're elderly, average age of 83. These are people who suffered and who've already seen so many of their families and friends and neighbors die um, before getting this day of recognition. I just want it with this banner. There's something quite wonderful about um, trials. Well, wonderful when it goes the right way. Trials in Japan that have high social interest is in this day of the, of the smartphone, you still wait outside. If you couldn't get into the courtroom, you still wait outside for an attorney or a leading person in the movement to come out with a banner, which is unfurled, to tell you whether the decision went your way or against you. This is one of those extraordinarily joyous moments um, when, the, when the court decided in favor of the sufferers. Um, and, and let me explain just briefly, since we've gone on for so long, why this decision is important for everybody around the world. Okay, so all of these plaintiffs will receive medical booklets and the support that that entails, um, all, every single one. Um, and secondly, um, it expands the area. This is part of what the, the meteorologists were working on. And this is the big one. It's internal contamination. I don't think there's a court case in Japan yet, or probably therefore around the world, where um, lack of direct exposure um, is explicitly recognized. Rika that um, Yuki referred to earlier, and, and there's several other compensation measures, um, energy employees, occupational illness compensation program. There, I got it out. Those tacitly acknowledge 
um, internal contamination, but never has it been stated in words, as far as I know, that your illness, the possibility of your illness is without having been directly exposed has been acknowledged. This is huge. This is another reason this decision was so shocking because it has immediate implications for the people affected by the Fukushima nuclear disaster. And what else do we have? Yes, this is another huge one in environmental struggles around the world. Usually the supplicants who are usually not in a good position to be proving that their ill health was caused by something. This takes the onus from them to prove why they were ill. In fact, rather the state is responsible for issuing booklets and support has to prove that the condition could not have been caused by radiation exposure. I hope you can have a sense of how momentous it, this is. And finally, um, yes, that anxiety, as Yuki was talking about, you don't already have to have contracted one of the 11 acknowledged illnesses. The fact that you have been living your lifetime, remember average age 83, worried about the day when you can no longer ignore your symptoms. That kind of anxiety has been also recognized by the court. And finally, this is shifting the whole regime of the ABCC, the Radiation Effects Research Foundation, um, the US Radiological Nuclear Regulatory Regime, which seems to have had as its operational principle, do your best not to recognize too many sufferers. So this decision, this court decision, tried to, seems to maximize relief. Let's give relief to as many people as we can instead of continuing to deny them. And the one, one of the wonderful things um, that uh, a leading plaintiff said is when asked, what's the next step for the Black Rain movement? Is to say it's to get health medical booklets for Fukushima sufferers. This could be a whole topic, a whole presentation in itself. The problem is that because Hiroshima and Nagasaki suffers, have suffered so much discrimination, and I would say Japanese society has not come to terms with that discrimination, it's not clear how much Fukushima people will recognize, will appreciate this kind of acknowledgement. In fact, discrimination has been weaponized as a tool to impose silence. If you start speaking out, Fukushima agricultural products will never get sold. Fishery products will never get sold. Never mind that on the other hand, the state is trying to dump that radioactively contaminated water. Um, some of you may have read about that. So we've gone on very, very long time. Thank you for your patience. Um, it's a shame um, that um, we can't touch on other aspects of gender and um, the economy. You can imagine. Yeah, thank you. We can show this. Um, no, not the, the previous one. Yeah. There's a very important endeavor going on in the United States and I'm gender and radiation impact project and this notion of reference goal. As you can all imagine that this kind of um, defining who qualifies and who doesn't qualify as a sufferer of some technology requires some sort of reference. And it has long been for radioactivity reference man who's a Euro, a European male, Caucasian male of a certain weight and height. And one of the projects of the gender, gender and radiation impact project is why don't we start going with reference girl? If we pick the most vulnerable person in the population, then everybody is protected. And then on the right hand, maybe a familiar face for most of you, Greta Thunberg of Sweden, 
and her phrase, you are stealing our future. Well, be, she's talking about climate change, but what could be truer also of this technology that we have uh, fed for 76 years at least. Okay, thank you. I hope, thank you all for your patience. We welcome comments and questions. So let me thank uh, Norma and Yuki for, for that uh, very enlightening uh, presentation. I mean, I think we can see what happens when you connect the dots and you start connecting the people. And, and they've done that uh, today, taking us from the Trinity Test of the University of Chicago to Hanford to New Mexico to Nagasaki to, to, to Fukushima and start showing us what, what do you start to see when you connect the dots. And uh, we're going to open this up for questions and, and comments. I, I will encourage people to, in, in the audience, to use the chat function if you're on the Zoom call. Or as I understand it, you can use the comment function. If you're on Facebook, we will we will uh, please write in your questions and we'll ask them. Um, I'll just some of the things that stood out for me as as we as I was listening is one of the things that we see when we connect the dots. One of the things is the crucial importance of recognition of sufferers and and who who whose suffering gets acknowledged, whose suffering does not get acknowledged, and they showed us. A certain arbitrariness to this process uh, and a corruption, something even stronger than arbitrariness, a, a, a deliberate obfuscation so that we can't recognize who's being suffered. And as they talked about, sometimes even the sufferers themselves uh, will not recognize their, their suffering. And I think another point that was made throughout the talk was internal contamination as being one of the key sites where suffering is has not been recognized. Um, let me see, we have, I'm, I'm looking at the comments we have. Um, this is one from Davinder. Um, do you think it will take 76 years for Fukushima sufferers to score a victory like the Black Rain protesters of, of Hiroshima this last July? What do you think the state? What do you, What do you think it looks like for at, at the end of your talk? You were starting to connect the, the what's happened to the Hiroshima and Nagasaki black rain sufferers to, to Fukushima. What do you think the future holds, or where is where are things pointing? I think Yuki might have her own re response to this, but when the um, the plaintiff who said the next step for the black rain movement was to get booklets for Fukushima sufferers, there was a question from the audience saying. It's so hard in Fukushima to say anything about radiation exposure. What makes you think that people, that booklets can come, become a reality or how do you think we should proceed? And his response was, well, I guess it's gonna take time. You know, it helps if, um, if the first generation of sufferers, if their kids have already gotten jobs and gotten married, then maybe people in Fukushima will be ready to accept health booklets. So, um, it's the aspiration to have this victory benefit Fukushima sufferers is extraordinary. And at the same time, it is, it is quite devastating to think about how long that might take. Um, I totally agree with Noma. I, I, I'm very much like to see a much shorter time for them to be um, to be offered some kind of help. However, what I have been concerned is that just voicing um, 
the danger of or, or possible danger of radiation exposure in Fukushima is considered as a discriminatory act toward the Fukushima people. And it's even sometimes considered as violence. And I found it very dangerous that the rhetoric is very dangerous because then it um, deters our attention from the original violence of radiation spread. Um, so it's the, um, the discourse there is that we can't even talk about radiation exposure or radiation, radioactive materials there. Uh, so that is very much of concern and related to that and also the issue of discrimination, um, people tend to use the term hibakushita, I was exposed to radiation, which is kind of one-time one time occurrence. Uh, that's the nuance there. And I, I could be wrong, but I got a sense that people still psychological uh, people still have some psychological difficulties or breaks there to, to identify themselves with hibakusha, which is more like the whole existence is becoming like sort of ontological shift using this fancy term. Um, but the entire existence is different from the normal people you are hibakusha, which is a kind of label, which is very hard for, for them to use, I suspect, rather than it's, it's, it seems rather easier for them to use just a one-time occurrence, I got irradiated, which itself is very courageous gesture uh, given the circumstances there. Um, so I, I'm just hoping that um, that because of this black rain lawsuit and um, that that will help them to be more connected and shorter time period for them to have more um, resolutions if that's possible we, we have a couple of questions about green run and, and hanford one from uh jan saying can you give us a short review of the green run and then from yukio asking, has RECA compensation ever applied to Hanford workers downwinders of the Green Run? Uh, when it comes to Green Run, can I defer the question to Norma, as I always do? That's not true. No, sorry. Um, what can I tell you? I was just rereading about it today. And this is 1949, so it's very early in the so-called Cold War. And of of course, the, United, the, the Soviet Union already had its weapons and the United States was very keenly trying to understand what, um, uh, what Soviet capability was at the time. And they thought, well, a quick way to find out is for us to try to reproduce what the Soviets are doing and see how much we can track it, what our capability is. And, the, and, and therefore, uh, the... Uh, the they're in the plutonium production facilities normally um these um tubes were allowed to mature for i can't remember what it was several a number of months and this time they they accelerated also supposing that the soviets also were in a rush and accelerating by accelerating the, the timing of release um what you do is um, you maximize the release of radioactive iodine-131, which is closely associated with, with thyroid cancer. And um, it has a very short 
uh, lifespan, um, half-life, and therefore you do it quickly. And by releasing it, um, and it also turned out to be um, the weather conditions were right. If you, weather conditions are really, really important in these things. If you, if you ever look at that map of Richard Miller showing the sites in the United States uh, where that were uh, passed over by more than two plumes, you will see that there's very little in California. That's because tests were not held if the winds, the prevailing winds were gonna take the fallout towards LA. Um, so the same thing with the green run, they, the weather conditions were ideal to maximize. In fact, that's later testimony says the people involved in it said they really didn't wanna do it, but we were forced to do it. We hear that kind of thing quite a bit after the fact. And therefore, um, the uh, radioiodine was deposited on grass and on, therefore, from the grass into the cattle, into milk, whatnot. Also, people could have directly come into contact with it. It spread far to the east as well. I would say that this should say this is not the only deliberate release of radioiodine on the public. Um, there were seven tests run a few years later at the National Laboratory in Idaho. So this one kind of, of human radiation experimentation that was performed by the United States on its own citizenry. Thank you. We, we have a question from, from Marianne about, um, I'll just read it. Thank you, Yuki and Norma, for a great talk. Why do you think the Hanford sufferers are so reluctant to see themselves as victims? And do you see a parallel with Fukushima? Um, uh, okay. Well, I see that some common threads, but also it's slightly different as well between Fukushima and Hanford residents. Hanford residents were widely, more or less, economically dependent on Hanford, and especially the city of Richland, where Norma and I stayed with uh, some families there while we were conducting this Nagasaki-Hanford bridge project. And um, partly because Richland is a city where most people are working, most people are working for Hanford and especially as scientists. So they are sort of middle-class well-off people and their livelihood is closely linked to this possible harm to their own, but also to their communities. And I think it might be psychologically very difficult for them to admit to that point. Um, and there, there must be many other reasons, but that's one of the things which we uh, kind of detected. And um, this is from other parts, actually St. Louis, Missouri. And when I, I, I went down there, people were talking about, um, that's a place where, uh, uranium for the Hiroshima bomb was enriched and the, the nuclear waste during that time uh, produced during that time was carelessly discarded in the area, which became the problem in the 70s, not knowing, but people didn't know about the cause. And it became more, uh, people started making dots, um, connecting dots in the 21st century after many years later. But anyway, so those people who are also uh, having a harder time in voicing their sufferings, partly because more practical reasons that they were not able to um, purchase the 
the health policies or uh, their lands, the value of their lands is going down, depreciated, and all, all those more practical reasons, which might be applicable to Hanford. Um, but as I mentioned earlier in Fukushima, perhaps those practical reasons as well, but, but more different reasons, more psychological perhaps, or more peer pressure might be working, which I, I would like to hear from Noma actually. I, I would just say that um, we do hear from Hanford workers um, much more than we hear from Fukushima workers or workers might be from anywhere in the country in Fukushima, but Hanford workers, um, but they've still in a way had to be whistleblowers. And, um, and um, it's not that we hear so many, but there is a watchdog for the workers. Um, and uh, so that perhaps encouraged, but, but, the hair, but there are hair raising stories coming out of Hanford now about the kinds of health impacts on workers there. And I think what Yuki was making a very important point is Richland, it wasn't named Richland for no reason. There are two other communities of a different demographic. Um, the residents of Richland, I mean, somewhat becoming diversified, but in a way, I think that the scientists and en um, engineers, the technicians and places like uh, Richland and Los Alamos, they are elite. They are elite people and it is as if they had been willing to trade in their health for their elite status and high incomes. So that's another um, kind of difference I think that we see from Fukushima. There is um, something that occurred to me that also who could evacuate from Fukushima given that the government defined the evacuation zones narrowly. Again, I think we see income, income differential. Who can afford to leave? It's not easy for most of us. Uh, again, let me encourage uh, anyone with, with comments or questions, please use the, the chat function. And uh, we have a question from Peter. Uh, the mission of the Eastside Freedom Library is to inspire solidarity. In addition to, 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 to today's theme of connecting the dots, what's being done to connect the people, to build solidarity be, between Americans and Japanese around these issues? Actually, there's someone on the call who could answer that very quickly, but many of you may have heard about Japan's plan to release um, the radioactively contaminated water, tritium, which the experts mostly will tell you is like water, but it happens to be radioactive, but it can't be separated. I'm gonna put it in my interns because it can't be filtered out. It's been defined as harmless, not quite, but in any case, it's been treated as harmless and it's going to be diluted in the ocean, people tell us. Um, dilution is not the solution with radioactive pollution, we have learned from many people. Um, so that is really a non-starter, but there is, right now, right now, there is a movement um, to connect people, young people, hooray, young people, to be concerned with this, young people um, from the Pacific Island oceaners um, rising up to protest yet further contamination of their oceans. Um, and um, if Yukio Kawano, who's on this call, who's been very involved with this, um, there is an organization called the Manhattan Project for a Nuclear Free World, um, based on what the core group is, is people who are living in New York. They have been part of this movement to connect 
with Pacific Island youth and other people in Fukushima and Japan um, to stop this further contaminant. We have contaminated the seas so heavily already. Why do we need to start doing this now? I wonder if Yuki would be, Yukio would be willing to give us a link to that site while we continue to talk. Yeah, please, please admit Yukio. Well, let me, let me, can we uh, invite uh, Yukio to, to, to join in and speak with us? Carla, can we? Yeah, thank you, Noma. Um, I, I, will, I will pause the link on the chat so everybody can see. Um, the group uh, Manhattan Project for Nuclear-Free World just did the, uh, the protest and uh, uh, march to the UN headquarters last Saturday. So I can send you the link and also more information. Uh, the Manhattan Project for uh, Nuclear-Free World actually um, had a petition uh, that um, a lot of anti-nuclear organization signed and and they send it to um, uh, to the government and it, the, the march that they did last Saturday was kind of the result of that petition so I'll send um, I'll post the link to the chat thank you thank you Yukio at, at the end of your talk, you raised the issue of climate crisis and how to address these issues in the context of, of climate crisis when oftentimes um, the Japanese government is certainly saying this, that nuclear energy is one of the ways out of the climate crisis. And I, I would love to hear your thoughts on this and, and how, how we connect these issues in a way that's responsible. Yuki, do you want to talk about that? or? Oh, oh, okay, I'll, I'll go first. Um, yes, it, I have been noticing that some major newspapers and uh, in Japanese and in English uh, talking about these articles running those sources, mass media, uh, kind of uh, praising the revival of nuclear power as green energy, which, which is not true. And also, um, which is not true, as uh, one of the things which I explained that the uh, nuclear reactors need a lot of the, the massive body of water, um, but how they use is that they use to cool down, of course, that raises the temperature of the water, which went back to the uh, water source. So this is not very kind, um, but all the, all the um, very uh, not very kind to the environment, especially uh, when those um, Pacific islands were um, facing more dire situation in which, for example, the Marshall Islands, there was a big dome, which um, the nuclear waste from the nuclear test was buried or the contaminated, contaminated materials and soils were buried in the big and, and made a big concrete dome, which was underground, but now it's it's appearing and it's now um, uh, immersed in the water. And so it is also very connected to this new, uh, uh, climate change and nuclear environmental disaster. 
And even though the nuclear tests had had took had taken place uh, three decades, four decades ago, there, but still we were dealing with the consequences, and even more so that we don't have the solution. And that's that goes back to what Noma was informing us um, by the. Uh, um, by the last last slide saying that we are stealing their future. So um, it, it seems to me that the nuclear reactors, nuclear power, I, I would like to ask how it can be a solution when we do, do not have any, um, any ways to see the nuclear waste, how to deal with nuclear waste and always nuclear waste goes to um, the communities which are struggling to begin with and in, in economically and also um, they are lacking resources in otherwise so that they cannot send a powerful messages. Uh, so in, in that sense, nuclear reactor itself is nuclear power itself is founded upon this sort of colonial uh, mindset, it seems to me. Yeah, thanks, Yuki. And I'd like to build on that. First of all, carbon free about nuclear refers only to the moment of carbon generation. Uh, I'm sorry, of electricity generation. Every other part of that involves fossil fuels from uranium mining to refine, to milling, to transport, to um, all the work that goes into maintaining reactors at the time of refueling and this and that. And then after that, what to do with that waste there is practically no carbon-free moment except for that moment of nuclear, of electricity generation itself. But let us say there is that moment of electricity generation. Um, I put in the chat two organizations that have very effective videos. I was actually hoping some NEIS member would link to our video that has recently been translated into a number of languages. Um, but the, the fact that um, in this age, when renewables have become so effective, there's a doubling down of, of pushing, selling uh, nuclear energy on the universe. There's a, a nuclear engineer at Stanford, Mark Johnson, who put it in a new way. Usually we hear about within the capitalist realm, opportunity costs. You don't do this and you're losing the opportunity to maximize your profit in this way. And he actually turned that on its head and said, how many people are going to die because we continue to support nuclear power generation because that takes up res public resources. Uh, we've seen that, I mean, now it's on the federal level about the Build Back Better and the, and the uh, help for uh, nuclear power plant companies like Exelon uh, for their failing enterprises. It takes up resources and it delays the further development of renewable energy. So. It stunned me at first, but it makes sense that people, um, but by continuing to support nuclear power, we are actually contributing to the illness and indeed mortality of people whom we know suffer from um, fossil fuel gener elect electricity generation. So there's that part of it. The other is that it's simply these technologies cannot be made fast enough to have the impact and they're way too costly. You'd think costs would put down put a damper in our system, but it doesn't seem to happen. People like Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and Elon Musk doubling down with their small modular reactors and advanced modular reactors 
as experts in the business will tell you, there is nothing particularly advanced about these technologies now being uh, promoted in, the, in both the US and elsewhere. Uh, in the UK, Rolls-Royce is trying to get in on that act. Um, and in Asia, particularly, there's a very big push to go nuclear. Um, we should worry about also, these do not address the problem of pro proliferation, which the nuclear powers have always professed to care about. So I think there are no pluses on the nuclear side of the column. Um, many minuses, um, much more damage to be suffered by people who uh, live um, on the transit route of nuclear waste um, and people who live in the vicinity of nuclear power plants. National Academy of Sciences, um, the biological effects of ionizing radiation, Bayer Committee, they, they were all going to sponsor a very major study of the impact of having a nuclear power plant facilitated in your community. I believe that was 2015. They did a pilot project and suddenly canceled it suddenly canceled it saying, oh, it's too much money. It's too much money. It was a pittance considering what we do to subsidize failing nuclear power plants. Um, so one has to become cautious when the National Academy of Sciences decides not to go through with such a study. Happily, we do have multi-country studies from other sites um, uh, that we can refer to for the incidence of leukemia among upon for nuclear power plant workers, for instance. But really what we needed is a good, um, a robust study on what it means to live with a nuclear power plant in routine operation, not even failing. I think what I'd like to suggest is that we move on to the next part of our, our program, which will be a more informal discussion. Uh, we will encourage uh, all the participants to, to, to stick around and uh, turn their cameras on and, and un unmute yourself so that we can engage in a more informal back and forth uh, discussion. Uh, Carla will turn the recording off. But first, I want to thank uh, uh, Yuki and, and Norma for, for a really enlightening and, and, and eye-opening uh, presentation today. So thank you.